Hey, this is Dave Ryder from Cullamunda Church of Christ. Really praying this podcast blesses you. If you'd like to hear more of our story, how about you go to our webpage, cullamunda.church. If you haven't met me, my name's Matt, and it is really my privilege to be here uh, sharing with you again this morning. Um, in, in your thoughts and prayers this morning, um, please remember to pray for the uh, folk at, at New Spring, where I come from. They're not doing church today or tonight. Uh, they're painting so I'm glad I'm here. <laughs> no, bless them. We, we've been given a great opportunity as a church to go and paint a primary school, like in a very uh, hard area, a very low socioeconomic area, where there's a lot of um, brokenness and uh, pain and, um, and abandonment. Like, and so many kids from that school go to the school hungry. Um, because they have no food. And you think, well, this is Australia, surely not. But it's true. And I know that's true of a lot of schools. But we've been given the opportunity as a church to just go and bless them. And the whole church has gone this morning to paint the classrooms. And the, and, and the kids don't know. And so my, my request to you as a praying church is that you would pray for them that as they step in their rooms tomorrow, that, um, that they'd be blessed that the Spirit of the Lord would just flow, even from the paint. Does that sound silly? <laughs> Hopefully the paint doesn't smell too much. But <laughs> do, you, do you know what I'm asking? That the, that the spirit of generosity, that the spirit of love would flow into their lives and change. It's just, it's a, yeah, it's good. And let me encourage you, please go and make the most of the opportunity to pray for your community. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to be able to walk the streets and just pray for businesses and for homes. You don't even need to know who lives there. And the Spirit will lead you as you pray. Um, and hopefully will lead you into conversation with people and what a blessing uh, that will be. We're going to dive into our uh, passage in Ephesians chapter 5 uh, this morning. And uh, I'm going to read it to you in a moment and, and you're welcome to follow along. But we're looking at Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 21 through to uh, verse 33. Really we should be going to chapter 6, 9 because it forms one whole kind of section. But for whatever reason it's been broken up. Um, I guess for the sake of time. So that's what we're going to be looking at. And the passage that we're looking at this morning um, is one that's received a lot of attention over the years. And if you're already looking at it, you'll be going, uh-huh, I know why. Um, and it's one that often gets brought up um, when couples go to pre-marriage counselling. When I was a youth pastor at Gosnell's Baptist, um, one of my roles, because I did a lot of weddings, was to do pre-marriage counselling, not just for church folk, but for uh, for people in the community as well. And this was one of the main passages that always got brought to the table when couples were trying to, especially Christian couples, when they were trying to sort out their theological differences before they stepped into marriage. Because kind of that's what happens at marriage counselling. Uh, usually you, you, you talk about where you're the same, where you're different, what are the things that might you know, become... You know, and it's a good practice, I think, to, to do that. Um, but this passage, this is the one... Um, that often gets brought up in regards to theological difference or perhaps even um, it can be a sticking point for some couples and for some it was even a roadblock. And I remember on a number of occasions having to walk uh, prospective newlyweds through what it is that this passage is actually talking about. And I'm going to be honest with you, for a lot of people it's not easy. So we're just going to acknowledge that. But we're not going to shy away from it. So are you ready? 
great because I am. You see, one of the main questions that couples had as they approached this passage was whether or not Paul's teaching on submission was relevant in today's culture. And that's a pretty valid question. And I'm hoping that today, as we examine this passage and really kind of ask the spirit of truth to teach this morning, um, that we would come to a conclusion which I believe will bless you as a church um, and empower you as, as a family uh, to walk in light and to walk in newness, which is what Ephesians has been all about. And I want to suggest to you this morning that this is one of those passages which often gets ripped out of its wider context and in some cases has done a lot of harm. Now, whilst we won't diminish what the passage is actually teaching because there are some good points in there, I want to show you this morning that when you examine the passage from a wider perspective, that it actually has more to say than you might think. Let's read it together. I'll, I'll read it for you here. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husband as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the saviour of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scripture says, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself and his wife must respect her husband. Before we go any further with this passage... Let's take a moment to actually consider the wider context. This is really important because verses 21 to 33 don't sit in isolation. You know, we, we like to take some passages of Scripture and just kind of pluck them out of the, of the book that they're in. And, and, you know, it is okay to do that because, and I'm a firm believer in that all Scripture is, is for teaching and correction and, and rebuke and for encouragement and all, and all of that. I absolutely believe that. But we also have to be a little bit smart when we come to these ancient texts. And, we need to, and we've been talking about this. We need to remember and understand that Ephesians is a letter in its entirety. And you need to read the whole letter to, to understand what's being said. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, of course it does. It's, it, but often we don't act like that when we come to Scripture. And so when we come to this passage as we are this morning, my invitation to you, um, and hopefully I can help you do this, is to step back and see where it fits, these passages where it fits in a wider context, because actually that brings more depth to what Paul is saying, and actually more power and more strength to God's word for us today. Chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians see Paul describing, as we've been discovering over the past few months, um, the church as, as a body. And we just kind of read a little bit about that just now. And the key theme through chapters 1 to 3 is the, is the unity of the church 
through Jesus Christ. As members of that body, we have been made into a new family. Do you remember that, those passages? Where it talks about Jew and Gentile uh, coming together and there's that passage about the, the breaking down of the dividing wall so that there's no longer Jew nor Gentile but one family. I'm paraphrasing a little. Do you, do you recall that? That's what chapters 1 to 3 are mainly about, about the unity of the church through Jesus Christ. In chapters 4 to 6, Paul outlines how we live as members of that new family joined together through Christ. And he implores us as his listeners to see ourselves in the light of the nature we have because of Christ. So in the first three chapters, we are, we are brought into unity through Christ... In the, second three, in the second lot of uh, chapters, uh, Paul is getting us to explore what it looks like um, to live as children of light because of Christ, because of Christ in us, because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, that we might live in such a way as to imitate Jesus Christ in every aspect of our lives. So that's kind of the bigger context of, of where we're going. And, and I'm going to paraphrase for you just very quickly uh, all of chapters 4 and 5, um, up until to where our reading is today. So uh, I've kind of just pieced these main thoughts together so that you get a sense of the flow of what Paul is actually saying. And see if you can't um, see for yourself these themes of, of unity and oneness in Christ. Uh, a paraphrase of chapter 4. Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God, united in the Spirit, called to one glorious hope for the future. Christ has gifted the church with prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, responsible for equipping God's people to do his work so that we might grow in unity in our faith and knowledge of Jesus, that we might grow in every way more and more to become like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit perfectly together, each part helping the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy. So don't live like the Gentiles do. That is not how you learn to Christ and the truth that comes from him. Instead, throw off your old sinful nature. Let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, a nature created to be like God, a nature that is truly righteous and holy. Therefore, because that's true, in other words, imitate God in everything that you do. Follow the example of Christ who offered himself as a sacrifice for us. Live as people of light. Do what pleases the Lord. Consider carefully how you live, not as drunken fools, but as ones filled with the Holy Spirit. And give thanks in everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a paraphrased summary of chapters 4 and the first part of chapter 5. You might recall if you were here last time I spoke here a few weeks ago that I talked about what it looks like to be imitators of Christ. Do you remember that? Uh, hashtag spiritual adulting, I think we called it. Yeah. And Paul was encouraging us, he's encouraging his listeners and encouraging us to mimic the example of Christ set for us uh, through the life and ministry of Jesus. To follow his pattern of living, literally, is what it means to follow his pattern for living as spirit-filled new creations, new people. Paul does this predominantly because he wants to remind us, he wants us to understand that when we live this way, we are in fact living out an incarnational theology. Do you remember that phrase? We're living out an incarnational theology. The idea that God not only dwells in us, but that he makes his presence known to the world 
through us. Just stop and think about that for a moment. God not only dwells in us, he makes his presence known to the world through us. If you could actually, and and this sounds belittling, I don't mean it to because I struggle to do this as well, but if we could actually get our heads around that, we could go home full now. (laughs) An incarnational theology. In simple terms, we ought, Paul says, we ought, he's encouraging us to, we ought to live our lives in such a way that make an imprint on the world around us. Remember we talked about typewriters? <laughs> Do you remember that? This, this Greek word typos, meaning to imprint, to leave a mark. That's what he's saying. And this is what Paul has been driving at all through chapters 4 and into chapter 5, so that when we come to verses 21 to 33, we need to read them in the light of that truth. Does that make sense? We can't just pull this passage out in isolation and go, it means this. We need to understand that Paul is continuing his thesis, his line of thought about what it looks like to live as ones who have the Spirit of God indwelling us and revealing himself to the world through us. We are living pictures, for the want of a better analogy. The key that links all of what I've just said together really actually can be found in verse 21. And it's actually really easy to miss, but in reality underpins everything Paul is about to say. Have a look in your Bibles, verse 21, and further, and fur- as soon as you see something like that, and further, or, you know, um, therefore you need to consider what's been said in front of what's about to be said. You know, imitating God in everything you do, follow the example of Christ who offered himself as a sacrifice, live as people of light, do what pleases the Lord, consider carefully how you live as ones filled with the Holy Spirit, giving thanks to God in all things, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Little verse, just a little verse. So, so powerful. It will change not only your heart, your heart and your life. It will change your church and your community. I really believe that if we can get our heads around what God is saying to us today through this passage, this little verse will, will radically transform who we are as his people here in Kalamunda, wherever it is that you come from. If you're visiting, welcome. Just dwell on that for a moment. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Submit literally means literally means to place under in an orderly fashion that that's all it means to place under in an orderly fashion and traditionally the word the word was used to describe either compulsory or voluntary subordination with the main idea being that on one side there was power or conquest if it's a negative kind of situation and on the other side uh, a lack or a suppression of freedom. The word is also used uh, many, many times in ancient literature to describe the hierarchy in the military. So you have a, a, com- a supreme commander, a commander, generals, and so on. If you've been in the military, you'll understand the, the rank- is it ranking. Is that the word? That's literally what the word submit means. It means to, to volunteer. When you go into the armed forces, you, you voluntarily step under 
command. If you're not prepared to step under command, you shouldn't be there. <laughs> so in one sense, that's a voluntary use of the word. Um, to place under in an orderly fashion means to submit. There's no doubt that the statement that we just read, that Paul writes here, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ, would have come as an absolute shock to Paul's readers. It would have been like, what did he say? <laughs> Type of moment. Let me explain what I mean by this because it actually sheds light on what is going on in verse 22. You see, in the first century in both Jewish and Greco-Roman society, the concept of family uh, was very different to our Western concept of family today, which tends to be much more uh, individualistic, I guess. You see, families in the first century, as they are in many parts of the world still today, uh, they're actually a household extended entity. Uh, what I mean by that is this. They were normally made up of a, a, a male head, a wife, children, other dependents, freed men and freed women and slaves. All of those people together were a part of the family. So it's very different to what we, we have today in Western culture. Our family is very nuclear, mum, dad, some kids, and maybe some extended family, um, if we can bear to be with them. Um, oh, I keep speaking about my own situation. It's because Christmas is... Own, no, let's not go there. But you understand, you understand the difference. In, in first century culture, as in many cultures today, family was an extended household entity and it involved much more than just those who are blood-related. It's very important to understand that when we come to this passage. The household head... And look, to be fair, we often talk about ancient culture as if we actually really know something about it. And, and when I say, oh, the household head, a lot of us will go, oh, that'll be the man. But it's not always just the man. In a lot of families, it was, there was a, it was a matriarch because perhaps there wasn't a husband or he had died in battle or had died early or something. So it's not exclusively about men, this passage. It's important to note that. But the household head, and sometimes it was a woman, was the ultimate source of power and identity for the whole household. That's how it worked. And largely determined the social, economic and religious activities of the household. His or her political allegiances were those of the family. It's like if dad follows one football team, you all better follow that team. <laughs> well, it's not like that, is it? Because, you know, families have rivalries around sport and stuff. But when we're talking about things like religion and culture, what the head of the family did predominantly dictated what the whole household did. His or her religion was that of the family. The head of the family was the point upon which all things in the household turned and pivoted. Submission to the head, or placing oneself under the leadership of the head of the family, was considered a great matter of honour. We live in a society that pretty much revolves around guilt and innocence. But in an ancient culture and a lot of other cultures around the world, guilt and innocence isn't the driving factor, it's honour and shame. And when we talk about families in the scriptures, we need to understand that we're talking about honour and shame culture, predominantly, not guilt and innocence, which is what we are. So we have to learn to reframe how we read some of this stuff. 
submission to the head was considered a matter of great honour. And to run a household where this didn't happen would have been considered a great, uh, would have brought deep shame upon the family name. So when Paul suggests, as he does in verse 21, that all those who follow Jesus should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, he's really speaking a new reality into the very fabric of society. You see, traditionally, submission's only ever one way. You submitted to the one above you in the power system or in the hierarchy structure. Slaves and free workers submitted to their masters. Children submitted to their parents. Wives submitted to their husbands. Husbands submitted to the ruling authorities. And ultimately, uh, for a lot of people in the ancient world, that meant submitting to a governing authority, like the Romans, for example. And then above that again, for many people, the pinnacle of submission was to the will of the gods. That's how society worked. Now, to be fair on Paul... He's not in this passage, I think, suggesting that the order of things should or will actually change. Because rightly or wrongly, there will always be people who hold power over others. In fact, there are many places, several places in the New Testament where we're actually instructed as followers of Jesus to submit to the governing authorities, to be obedient to the law of the land in which we live and always be ready to do good. This is what our kids are learning about this morning, right? Always be ready to do good for the benefit of the community in which we live. There will always be ruling powers and authorities. It actually says in the scripture that God ordains that. Even though when we look at some of our authorities, we go, really? But that's the way it is. The problem... The problem is we don't like the word submit. We don't. We hear that word today and we equate it with inequality, oppression, the abuse of power, and for very good reason. Because all through the centuries, that's what has happened. Ever since Adam and Eve uh, in the Garden of Eden chose not to submit to the words that God spoke, mankind has railed and rebelled against submission. In turn, those who find themselves in position of power all too often abuse that power. We know the reality of that. Forcing others under them into a life of subjugation and servitude. You see, in our ever-increasing desire for autonomy and control as human beings, we've taken the God-ordained order of things and turned it into a self-serving quest for power, wealth and position. However, Paul says in verse 21, what he says in verse 21 radically alters the perspective of how we submit to others. He says, and it's right there, (laughs) submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is a slap in the face for his hearers. 
This is a new teaching. This is not how it's done. This is not a reflection of the ordered nature of the society in which they live. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it's important for us this morning to get our heads around this because it's the very thing that motivates and empowers us as followers of Jesus to live a life of submission. This word reverence here in verse 21, it has a very specific meaning. It's a meaning which I think unlocks the whole passage. It quite literally means, and hear carefully, it literally means to honour Christ by showing a deep and reverential awareness of our accountability to him. I'll say it again. Reverence literally means in this passage to honour Christ by showing a deep and reverential awareness to our accountability to him. In other words, to submit to one another is to imitate Christ because he in turn submits to his Father. You see, you see the pattern? As one submits to the one above. To submit to one another is to imitate Christ because he in turn submits to the Father and we are accountable to Christ just as he was and is to his Father. Jesus did or spoke nothing without the Father's... Do you know what I'm saying? It flows down. It flows down through into us. Here's the rub. And we're just going to dive straight into this. <laughs> the rub is that this all depends on our willingness to accept that God has ordained a certain order in the marriage relationship. Let me finish this statement before you stone me. <laughs> this all depends on our willingness to accept that God has ordained a certain order in the marriage relationship. Not one based on power, but one, but one shaped by a correct understanding of authority and grounded in love. So important not based on power, but shaped by a correct understanding of authority and grounded in love. Remember, power and authority are two very different things. They are not the same. Uh, the, the gentleman called Mark, Max Weber, and he's a social theorist, whatever that is, and, he, and he's got some excellent writing, actually. He, he describes power as having a coercive element, whereas authority has a non-coercive one. That's interesting. In other words, you can do what someone asks of you because you have to do what they say because they have the power to make you do it. <laughs> or you can do what someone asks of you because you want to do it out of respect for who they are to you. That's the difference between, the, that's, that's the difference between power and authority. You see, all too often we confuse authority of power with the power of authority. Lucky for us, we have a model, <laughs> a template that we can go by. His name is Jesus. And he modelled the power of authority in his life and his ministry. Even though he had no political leverage, 
no military at his command, no real social standing, no wealth to his name. He often exercised the power of authority. He commanded demons to leave and they left. He returned sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf so that they could see and hear. He healed the paralyzed so that they could walk and use their limbs again. He calmed storms. He created new wine and multiplied bread and fish. He restored people who had died to life. That is the power of authority. All these acts of power that Jesus displayed when he walked the earth were the result of his love for people and were possible because of the authority given to him by his father. Do you see how it works? Authority comes down from the one above and manifests and flows through our lives when it does so in love. The power of authority. Authority is given, it's not earned. Power is often taken and enforced. It's a heavy word. Are you up for it? Because it gets better. It gets better because there's some real awesome truth in this for us as a community. Not once, when you examine the Gospels, not once... Do you ever see Jesus forcing people to follow his commands? Not once. On the contrary, people willingly accept who he is out of awe and respect for his authority. How many times do you read in the gospel accounts that the people marvelled at his teaching because he taught as one with authority, that they were, uh, I'm going to use, they were gobsmacked, (laughs) at the miracles that he did because of the authority that he commanded. All worked out for people in need through love. There was a deep and reverential awareness of the love of God at work in their lives through this man that stood before them named Jesus. Reverence. And that's exactly what Paul means when he speaks about the marriage relationship to highlight what living in submission to God looks like. We've got it all messed up. And there's probably some good reasons why it's all messed up and a lot of them are because of our brokenness as people. But here's how the hierarchy kind of works. And we're talking now about this context here. All power and authority belong to who? To God, to Jesus. All power and authority belong to God. Absolutely. Jesus willingly submits to the authority of his Father, even though he has the power to not. Think about that for a moment. Jesus willingly submits to the authority of his Father, even though he has the power to do otherwise. And so in marriage, so this is why I want you to listen carefully here, because this is the context that Paul is using We're not talking about men and women as separate entities here because as men and women, we are created equal in the sight of God in his image. The scripture says that clearly. So this is not about men and women. The context here is the marriage relationship. So if you're not married, this is still relevant to you because one day you might be. 
If you are married, this is relevant to you because you're married. Um, and, you know, in, in a room this size with this many people, the spectrum of where you sit and think on this is going to be broad. I accept that. But please come to this passage understanding that this is the context. In marriage, a husband willingly submits to the authority of Christ, even though he has the power and freedom to choose otherwise, because he has free will. Does that make sense? We're talking about a, a, a godly man submitting to God. Uh, in marriage, a wife willingly submits to the authority of her husband... This she does by choice, out of respect for the authority bestowed on him by God. Do you see how it works? This is what Paul's saying. He's using an example from, from his culture and from the ordained order of things that God set in place through the scriptures. This has nothing to do with men being superior to women. Far from it. And if I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if anyone preaches that, throw them out. It's not biblical. We are created equal in the image of God as men and women. The Bible is clear. It's clear on that. The context of this passage is how the marriage relationship parallels or mirrors the relationship Christ has with the church. Now, what it says about marriage is true, but Paul is using it as an example to highlight the relationship that Christ has with the church. That's why this passage is in here. Submission in this passage is in response then to our understanding of what God has done for us in love through Christ. It all comes back to what Paul says at the very beginning of chapter 5. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let me frame this in another way. When we live our lives in submission to others, we actually become living examples of Christ's relationship with his Father and with the church. And importantly, as we look at verses 23 now and 25, as we kind of bring this to a close in, in a few moments, um, I want you to notice two things. That it's a two-way relationship and it's a relationship brought about by an act of salvation or renewal or new life, which is one of the themes of the first three chapters. For a husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the saviour of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so your wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. Remember how we talked earlier about the, uh, about the structure of first century families and how it was very different to our modern structure, which is very individualistic? That families were extended household entities where the head of the house, most commonly the husband, determined everything about the family. Recall we talked about that, Right? It's important to keep that in the back of your mind. You see, when Paul compares a husband in his role as head of the family with that of Christ in his role as head of the church, he very much has in mind this idea of headship in relation to the family unit. This doesn't make a husband better than his wife. 
It simply places him in a position of responsibility and accountability before God. In becoming a husband, the man commits to loving and protecting his wife. Now, this might sound a little bit chauvinistic in today's culture, but you have to remember that in the first century, this was very, very important. An unmarried woman lived under the protection of her father's household. He provided everything she needs, not just security and protection, but her life depended on her connection to her father's household. Through marriage, the role of protector and provider shifts to the husband. She steps out of one household into a new household. That's the picture. And if you want to extrapolate that to a spiritual degree, she dies to one life and is reborn in a new one. Isn't that a beautiful picture? With a new name, a new family unit. All under God. It was all under God here as well because her father was her protector and he was under God's authority to look after his household. When she marries, the husband takes on the role of love and protection under God. And that's how it works. Isn't that a beautiful picture? A beautiful picture. This is not a new concept for Paul's readers. They get, they get this. This is everyday life for them. There's nothing new or radical about this idea. What is radical about Paul's instruction here is when he compares the husband's role with that of Christ's in that the husband should imitate Christ by giving up his life for her just as Christ gave up his life for the church. This act of marriage, the joining of two individuals into one unit, is in Paul's eyes an imitation of what happens when believers leave their old life and begin a new life as members of Christ's household. Christ's body, one body, joined together. When we do that, when we all do that, we submit to the headship and authority of Jesus, whether you are husband or wife, or follower of Jesus, not yet married, or widowed, or not. The illustration still stands. We submit to God through Christ, who dwells in us through His Spirit. And we submit to one another. So together we submit to God through Christ as one body. I think I've said that clearly enough. It's revolutionary. We submit to the headship of Christ who becomes the head of a new family. As members of this new family, our submission to Christ and to one another becomes what I'm calling our new normal, our new reality. In fact, this message is called a new normal. 
it will change this church. It will change your families. It will change this community. If we can just find the courage to place ourselves correctly under God's Lordship, under, under the Lordship of Christ. In every aspect of our lives. So what does this actually mean for us? <laughs> How do we walk out of here today changed people, new creations that we are? Understanding what it means to submit to Christ and to one another. How do we actually do that? <laughs> I could wrap this message up with a long list of suggestions. I could outline for you a framework of what submitting to Christ looks like. But actually that wouldn't be helpful for you because I can't do that for you. I can only do it for me. Because only I know what areas of my life need to come under submission to the Lordship of Christ. And if you know me well enough, then you'll probably know some of them as well. And if you're my brother in Christ, then please come and tell me in love. Because <laughs> that's what we ought to do as a family. In love. But I can't tell you how to submit to God only the Spirit of God can tell you that. And I'm guessing quite confidently right now that the Spirit is talking to many of you, all of you, I hope, about the areas in your life which need still to come under the submission of Christ, under the Lordship of our Saviour. And I dare say there's going to be areas where our lives need to change in regards to being in submission to one another, in love, serving one another, praying for one another, putting others' needs before our own. That, that type of thing. We know, we know this stuff. If we've grown up in the church, we sang songs in Sunday school about it. I seem to recall a song, Joy, Joy, Jesus First, Yourself Last, Others In Between. Does anyone remember that? Oh, that's how old I am. So Joy, J-O-Y, Jesus First, Yourself Last, Others In Between, J-O-Y. For some reason, that song has just always stuck in my head. All, even when I rebelled from, from God and the, the grace on my family, even when I rebelled and pushed away from all of that, for some reason, that simple little song stuck in my head. It's always, I hope, I've tried to use it to shape and guide how I deal with people. Jesus first, myself last, and, and others in between. That's what submission looks like. It's a position of humility. It's a position of meekness. All these words we don't like. <laughs> but we should love. Because they're a reflection of the image of Christ. You know what's bizarre? This is, this, I'm off track here, but it's important. Because when we learn to do that, when we humbly accept that with joy and thanksgiving, nothing makes our Heavenly Father <laughs> smile more, I think. And through that, He releases untold power and grace in our lives to bless others. It's, it's a mystery. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> but that's how He works. 
So I don't know what the issues are for you. I'm going to put two questions on the screen and the team are going to come and just we're just going to have a moment of reflection. We were praying earlier that sometimes when we start talking about issues of submission and putting and placing ourselves under the authority that 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 I don't even want to say it. But the devil comes and tries to steal that away from us. That's not going to happen here today because we've already covered it in prayer. But sometimes it's hard to speak the words. So I want to invite you to come and write them. There's two uh, canvases, one on each side of the um, platform here. And the questions are here. What areas of my life do I need to submit to Christ? In what ways might I show the love of Christ to those around me? Now I'm not asking you to pour out your heart on canvas. It might just be one word. You might write it in code if that's how you work. I don't mind because it's not about what I can read. It's about what God is saying to your heart. You don't even need to come and write anything if you don't want. But don't leave here without at least addressing the issue. Make a pact, a covenant with God that His Spirit might continue to work in your heart and change not just your, your attitude but your heart, your life. But of course, if you'd like to come and write, then that's what I'm inviting you to do. We're going to have some reflection, just some reflection. There are some pens. I'd love it if you just came and thoughtfully just recorded here a word or a phrase that answers one of these questions or both if you like. Father, as we submit ourselves to the authority of your word, to the prompting of your spirit who is our not just our helper but our teacher and the revealer of all truth who can see into that very darkest corner of our heart and Lord I pray that you'd begin to do work in our lives we confess we confess that we struggle with this idea of submission and yet you call us into a place of humility with repentant hearts so that we might take our place in the proper order of things as you have ordained it with you as Lord, sovereign, ruler giver of life, sustainer of all things not just over us but in us and working through us and that as we place ourselves humbly in our proper position before you that we would be flooded with and overwhelmed with and totally immersed by your incredible love and your deep deep grace that we might know more and more and more and more not just the forgiveness that is ours through the blood of Christ but the freedom we have in the new life and the power that we have through your spirit in us to live as children of light Come, come when you're ready. We'll just allow a few moments and then we're going to sing. And you can even come and do it whilst we're singing and I'll leave them there and you can come and do it afterwards. I'm not even going to take them home. The elders can do what they like with them. Maybe some people might take them and pray over them.